0: They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've met hundreds of wrestlers. They own thousands of DVDs and have watched millions of hours of wrestling. They are Primetime Pause and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. <laughs>
1: Extraordinaire, teams with WWE legends for the charity event of a lifetime. On Saturday, June 13th, join Glenn Kelly, glennkelly.com, and B98.5 at the Aztec Oceanfront Resort in Seaside Heights from noon to four. This is your chance to meet WWE legends like Olympic gold medalist Kurt Angle, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Jake the Snake Roberts, Mick Foley, Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, and many more. All proceeds for this will go to eternal tranquility. For all event info and to sponsor your company, visit glennkelly.com. That's glenkell
2: dot I should point out, too, I have a website, uh, jjdillon.com, so that's, that's easy to remember. And it's been up for, I don't know, since my autobiography, Wrestlers Like Seagulls, was first published in 2005. Never sold in bookstores. Uh, it was the second book that Scott Teal co-authored, and he owns Crowbar Press to publish it. And he was the first one. I was the second one and it's the only hardbound book that he did and there were, original printing was three thousand copies and last year uh the the, the, the it completely sold out and it was all from you know, people just going through the website or I would take some books to personal appearances and just uh it's my life story and Scott Teal did a phenomenal job of, of taking my words and putting it in a in a presentable way, uh, to make it a good read. And, uh, he's now had it reprinted with a soft cover that, uh, is available. And uh, like I say, I just got a, a couple of cases of them and I'm going to take some books to Wilmington this weekend. And, uh, it's amazing that the, the through word of mouth the people, you know, when they find out I'm going to be appearing somewhere or well, you're going to have some of your books with you. So, uh, it's amazing that it's uh, done as well as it. It's amazing, I guess, that it's done as well as it has. But I think also that it's a it's a great book because I had the unique perspective of of the length of my career, of being on the inside for you know the early territory days and how cable television changed everything, and then went to work for Vince McMahon after I retired. And so it's kind of like a history of wrestling. It's uh, if you were going to teach a college course, you could have that be your textbook for wrestling one hundred and one. And even if you're not a, a die-hard wrestling fan, if the wife, you know, husband buys the book, the wife could pick it up, and it's a feel-good story about a, a a teenage kid in Trenton, New Jersey, that had a dream and and had an opportunity to to live his dream. And I never ever would have thought that at the end that I would. That, be wearing two hall of fame rings that kind of validates uh you know everything that i worked so hard for and was able to accomplish and especially the pro wrestling hall of fame because that's your peers that's the people that you were in the dressing room with every night that look at your body of work and uh, i think the wwe hall of fame certainly gets more recognition it's you know more widely known but uh, I don't know what the process is for selection, but I do know for the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame that there's a, there is a set procedure that's laid out on their website. And to have the people that you work with recognize you for what you accomplish, is, uh, I don't care what you do in life, that's the greatest uh, greatest
1: feeling in the world. Yeah, the book is absolutely phenomenal. I, uh, I read it in its original form when it was first released, uh a good 10 years ago already, which is kind of hard to believe. And uh, we will cover all your plugs again at the end because it was very well said and it, it couldn't have been put together any better uh, had we scripted that. That's a fantastic cell on your your site, which is a absolute walk down JJ J. Dillon memory lane. It is so cool how you formatted it and you really you go step by step by step with pictures and it's it's absolutely fantastic. But you're just going to transition to this earlier and you, you touched on it anyway, but. In 1989, you moved on to uh, working for Vince and the WWF. And at the same time, uh, you had mentioned it as well earlier, Arn and Tully had moved on to the WWF. A little bit later, about two years later, uh, Flair came in, but then Arn and Tully were gone. Was there ever any talk of you being an on-screen character and possibly having the Horseman in some incarnation at some point? Because I do believe, I could be wrong, but I, w- there was talk of maybe Flair coming in Uh, Before he did in 1991, uh, do you think the Horseman ever could have had a place on WWF-TV?
2: The answer to to that question is yes, and would it ever happen, the answer to that question is no. Um, And the reason being that Vince always, well, first of all, Vince used to take the the raw talent and and create a persona as a business decision where he would own the... uh, Um, the rights to the name and the likeness for all the purposes of licensing, merchandising, and what have you, which was a very smart thing to do. In other words, Steve Austin had been Steve Austin before, but really it was stone cold, and that's what Vince owned the rights to. Um, The road warriors. uh, You could say, well, geez, the road warriors could have, but he created demolition. And what was demolition? Demolition was Vince's version of the road warriors and Vince had this thing whether it was never really openly talked about but unless it was Vince's creation or created from within his own company it wasn't something that appealed to him he would rather create something similar uh to something else you could say that the rockers really were you know the rock and roll express um you know there's a bunch of uh, uh, of examples. So there was never any. When actually, when I was hired, it was made clear that day that I was offered a job that he was hiring me uh, because of my creative input that I could offer. I had the reputation of being a detail person. That you know, Dusty was a big picture guy. Kevin Sullivan was a big picture guy, and I was an atten- You know, small detail attention guy. So. I always complimented people like Dusty Rhodes. I could never have been done what Dusty did. I could not have replaced him and done as well as he did. But working with him, I think we were a great combination that made the end product, uh, uh, you know, better than what it would have been otherwise. And so Vince made it clear when he hired me that I was walking off camera, which you know was okay with me. How many times could I? Be a special attraction match against uh, Precious Paul Ellering. I mean, I couldn't do it forever. And so the fact that I was walking off camera and being an employee, the benefits that I never had before because I was always an independent contractor and never uh, an on screen talent. So when Flair came in, there was knowing the circumstances under which I was hired. Uh, it, w- it wasn't going to happen that Vince would would want to create the Horsemen and reestablish me as an on air talent.
1: So with that being said, you know you you had the daunting task of being in talent relations, and at that time uh, another thing we mentioned earlier was uh, Jerry Jarrett's uh, involvement in coming on board, and also some of the personalities that you had to deal with back then, including the Click, but also being there for some of the talent that ended up having a pretty lasting impression on Vince's organization coming in, like The Undertaker, like Triple H. Tell me about, you know, being in town relations. What were some of the the best parts? Was there anything that really bugged you being in town relations for Vince and having groups like The Click run amok? Um, just could you kind of cover that, if you don't mind?
2: Well, it's a thankless job, and I think there's, uh, if you look back, at uh, how long I was there, how long John Laurinaitis was there, how long Jim Ross was there. <coughs> it seems like the seven, like the seven-year itch or something, where
1: <laughs> after
2: seven years the relationship uh, wears thin. And Vince, uh, I, I think having read my autobiography, you'll have to agree that I wrote it at a time when I was out in the business. I had no axe to grind with anybody. I wasn't walking on eggshells, waiting for the phone to ring with somebody to offer me a job. So I didn't want to, you know, be uh, open with uh, my feelings on things. And I think I was very uh, objective about my evaluation of all the people that I worked with. And and the thing is, and if you're going to do that, then I think you have to be willing to look in the mirror and and take the same approach with yourself, which I I try to do. Uh, I think I was very open about where I th- thought my strengths were, where I thought my weaknesses were, and and I had worked all these regional territories on a much smaller scale. And when I get to the WWF, they're a, a big company where if I wore ten hats hats before, they now have ten people that are doing what I did before on a full time basis that uh, are. You know, very successful in that aspect of the business. Not all wrestling people and not even necessarily wrestling fans and Vince's only demand was you don't have to be a wrestling fan but you've got to watch the wrestling product I want you to be uh, aware of what we're doing at least be informed and Vince is a workaholic he's, he's a 24-7 guy he doesn't believe in taking vacations and he would bring guys back from vacation to fire him and uh, to me, I think you you I think it's healthy every now and then, which is why people take vacations to get a break from whatever you're doing, to get away and to get away from some of the pressure and uh, and and I think when you come back, you can come back with a different perspective, a fresh perspective, and 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 it can be beneficial. Vince didn't see that. Vince is just. And the other side of it is, and I, and I think I was very honest, In, in I wrote a whole chapter, uh, I I think I, whatever criticisms, uh, a lot of it was personal events uh, that I talk about, I think I was equally honest about the fact that I learned a lot from him, that I was given an opportunity to, to do things. And it's like when you do something that you have a passion for, you never stop learning. I, it's not like you ever reach a point that oh, okay, I've got all this wealth of experience. I now know it all. You never know it all. You're still le- I'm still learning. And so the time that I was there with Vince, uh, I, I did I did learn a lot. And um, you know we went our separate ways. And I went to uh, Atlanta. I didn't have a job when I left. Uh, ended up in Atlanta and never met Eric Bischoff before and. Realized uh, when I first got there, you know, he was somebody who really didn't understand the wrestling business. Though I certainly wasn't going to express it in those uh, blunt terms to him. I mean, all he wanted to talk about was, you know, how much longer can Vince lasts. You know, like he was obsessed, thinking that he was going to put him out, out of business, and I didn't want to tell him that here's a, a company that's like. You know, third generation at that point, and that's all they do. This is their life. They understand how to run the wrestling business. Wrestling is simple, you know. It's you could say it's good versus evil, uh, but to be able to run the wrestling business and to do so profit profitably is uh, is is not is not an easy task. And you look at what Vince has done. The how he's built that brand and the success he's had Um, you can't argue with success he's the most successful promoter in the history of our business and I don't have a uh, um, uh, any kind of relationship with him and as a matter of fact when I was inducted into the Hall of Fame I was told it was uh, Vince's blessing as to who was picked to be the horseman and somebody said well if they are going to do the horseman how could they do it and not do you because you were such an integral part of it but just the fact that he took the horseman um and that I was a part of it with Vince's blessing and but Vinces had a track record I mean it's going back to Bret Hart, who you know spit in his face at ringside and punched him backstage so if you were in Vegas taking odds on on what do you think the chances are that Vince McMahon and Bret Hart would ever do have any kind of business relationship again, I think the odds would have been phenomenal, but Vince if he sees a potential business-wise he has the ability to put his personal feelings aside or whatever he feels, and, and I guess you never really know what he feels, and he, you end up in the relationship, and it's good for both parties. <laughs> Excuse me.
0: No problem. Um, no problem. You mentioned WCW for a second there. Now You went back to WCW as an on-air character. My favorite part may have been the contract presentations to Sting leading to the huge match at StarGate 97 versus Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Did you like that angle, and did you like playing a face after years of being a Lee heel with the Four Horsemen?
2: Well, everywhere that I ever went, it's like when I, I worked, with Cro promotions, I never watched the other product. It wasn't like I was monitoring what they did. I always put all of my effort into being the best that I could be with what i where I was working and who I was working with and the same thing when I went to work for Vincent Grant, I didn't watch the other product it was all my effort was to do the best job uh that I could there, so that's all always been my philosophy but i had longevity in the executive side of the business some of it had to do i think with my my personality i uh easy going you never have a situation where in a business like wrestling where there you're never going to be liked by everybody and especially in the position of talent relations because it's kind of like the press secretary for the president of the United States your job is to catch the hand grenades in case they go off and they don't go off on the in in the president's lap and really talent relations is the same thing and you have to have a personality to be able to accept that as your role the advantage i had as i look back through my career because I was a fan and loved the business when the when the opportunity presented itself to be a referee I could I could be a good referee because I I knew what to do instinctively when I became a wrestler even though I didn't have a lot of formal training being a fan being a referee enabled me to quickly pick up the the wrestling side of it being around great minds like Dory Funk and Terry Funk and Bob Geigel and Eddie Graham and Bill Watts and Dusty Rhodes, um, it, I had a level of respect. And it's it's respect is something that somebody can't just give to you or say, hey, now you're going to respect this person, and especially in the rest of it. It's something you have to earn. And you only earn that especially in the wrestling business, over a long period of time. And so when I had to deal with talent, I was usually the bearer of bad news. Vince took credit for everything that was good and never took any heat for anything that wasn't good. And so I always had in the back of my mind in dealing with talent and when it wasn't good news, um, hey, I walked in that guy's shoes. And if I was standing there today how under these circumstances what I feel best about the situation. And that helped me in in my approach. As an example, they they used to have a 90-day out clause on contracts. And a lawyer would draft a letter, and it was written in legalese, not warm and fuzzy, and they'd send it FedEx. And just like plane tickets used to go out, FedEx... uh, the talent, and if a if a guy goes to the gym and the FedEx thing comes and the wife opens the envelope and there's a letter stating you know that your contract's not being renewed, that's a horrible way. For the husband comes home and there's the wife in tears. You know what are we going to do? We're Feed our family. Yada yada yada. So I changed the format and I said that no letter will be sent to any talent until I have made a personal phone call to that talent before the letter ever ever goes out and you know I could have a conversation and say you know this is the toughest part of my job and I could ease into the conversation that ended up in the same result the benefit was that the guy knew first and he had a night to sleep on it and think about how he could Break the news to his wife before that letter came in the mail. It doesn't seem like that big a deal, but it really is a big deal as a talent to be treated with a level of respect because that's really all you want. And I, and that's what I did because, as I said, I walked a mile in their shoes. So it allowed me to have longevity in the business because, um, you know, I had a level of of respect which I had earned.
0: Now the that, uh, the sting angle in particular in WCW, did you like how how it was presented? Basically, uh, you were giving him presentations leading up to fighting Hulk Hogan. And did you mind being a, a face?
2: Yeah, I guess you asked the question. I never answered it. And and where, I think where I was going was no matter where I worked, my total focus was with the person who was signing my paycheck. And it was no different when I left since and went to WCW. I had an impression of what Eric Bischoff was all about, but I was there. They were paying me. And so I was a team player, and even though I, I, I think it happened by accident where they wanted a proclamation about something, and they said, well, you know, I'm comfortable speaking. Why don't you do it? And, and so... We went to the CNN Tower and one of the big offices with a big fancy mahogany desk and and you know and I gave whatever it was and somebody said, oh, wow. I mean, the people tend to forget. They said, wow, you're really good at this. And so that then opened the door for me then to be like the quasi-commissioner or whatever it was. So then I had to do a lot of things that often did not make sense. There was no <laughs> continuity to it. Uh, but I... Pretty much didn't question the logic of why certain things were done. I just did whatever was asked, whether I was in agreement with, with it or not. So it was kind of sad for me to have had such a wonderful career and have it end the way the way it did, with uh, you know WCW going under because of gross mismanagement. And if you read my book, there's only three people who I really don't have a lot of good things to say about. Brad Siegel is at the top of the list because yeah. he was the golden boy that was supposed to be so brilliant that, and he was the guy who allowed it to happen. Eric Bischoff, who um, basically uh, you know was a great salesman and could sell the sizzle, but could never deliver the steak. And I I had a philosophical difference with with uh, Third guy, terrible names, uh, who you know became creative, and I was uh, inspirational in in bringing him in. They wanted a change, and I got a phone call from a third party saying that he wanted out of New York. He'd been helping Vince, and uh, and uh, I set the meeting up, and he ended up getting hired and when he came in uh it, it took me a little while to realize that our outlook on and I'm talking about Vince Russo uh, on on wrestling was uh at opposite ends of the spectrum. I was old school in many ways and his vision was entirely different. And part of it was personal. I was in New York for an appearance Oh, it's probably been, I don't know how many years ago. There was a big show in Long Island where they had everybody in the world there. And uh, he was there, Baby Doll was there, and they put the managers together, and they were going They want to put him and I next to each other. And I said, look, please, just, um, you know, I don't want to. <laughs> I, never, I never said, you know, I won't do this, I won't do that. I said, okay, just put me at one end of the table, put Baby Doll in the we'll put him at the other end. And he walked in, he didn't say anything to me, I didn't say anything to him. And he got up maybe two times in the time that we were there to go to the restroom. And it was either the second or the third time. He walked by me, stopped, turned around, took two steps, looked me in the face, and he said, I owe you an apology. And he said, what I did was wrong. And he said, "Uh, I don't know what else to say other than I'm offering you my apology. And I said, Well, you know, I don't believe in, in you know, holding grudges. And I said, It takes a man to, to say, Hey, what I did was wrong or, uh, you know, and, you know, to apologize. I said, As far as I'm concerned, it's uh, it's done and over with. And he said, When he wrote a book, he said, I will set the record straight. And I understood that uh, later on he did write a book. And and in there referenced that exchange uh, that happened in Long Island where he did offer an apology. And it's funny when he walked away because Baby Doll was sitting there and she's the one person who did witness it, overheard everything. And I remember it just like it was yesterday. She looked at me and she said, boy, I bet you never thought that conversation would ever take place. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Shrugged my shoulders and said, Yeah. So I have no personal animosity against Vince Russo, so the number from three is now reduced to two. And I just have come to realize that that Vince Russo and I have totally different approaches to what we think the presentation of wrestling should be. That's not to say that I'm right and would ever change his mind, or that he's right and he would ever change my mind. It just is what it is.
1: Well, I will say that is that's quite refreshing to hear, um, because of all the negativity that is out there surrounding Vince Rousseau, uh albeit on either a daily basis uh, that he's bringing it on himself, or every few months when he, you know, feels the need, I guess, that he's back in the news at in, in some point, but. I digress, and that is great to hear that you were able to kind of bury the hatchet, but just wanted to take a step back, and this is something that we never really do. We never really ever make it about ourselves on the show, but because you're on, we, we have to mention this. The reason John was so adamant about asking that question is because it's been a long time kind of running gag between you know our group of, of friends that's always been a fan that we love that angle where you were chasing Sting with the contracts because – you did such a good job in playing the straight man, presenting Sting with the wrong contract. And as the fans were eating up every minute of it, you kept your cool in the ring. And it was so, it was so much fun to watch every week as you presented Sting with another contract. You'd give him uh, six from the NWO, or you'd give him you know, Buff Bagwell when everybody's chanting Hogan. That's strictly the reason that question came up twice. But thank you, uh, thank you for shedding light on that, uh, that well, era. I,
2: I take that as a great compliment because even if I was challenged with doing something that I didn't have my heart in or didn't thoroughly believe in because they were paying me and that was what I was challenged with doing and what was expected from me, I was at least going to go out and not do it half-hearted or do it in a way that it became apparent that uh, you know my heart wasn't in it and I would do so... Still, to the best of my ability, so if you walked away with that impression and felt that i that I did a good job doing it, I take that as a great compliment. I appreciate it
0: now, with the backstage um controversy, I mean, you worked a lot of talent relations and stuff. I was just curious who was, do you think was the best signing you've ever had as like a talent relations guy? maybe who was the worst?
2: Oh boy um <laughs> There were so many that came there that uh, um, I was there when the Undertaker was hired, and, and he came to Vince's home, and it was just um, you know Mark, uh, Vince, and I in his uh, uh, in his formal living room, and if I remember right, Vince's first gut reaction was he wanted to make him a Viking with a helmet wow. with the two horns, and of course, you know, it ends up he became the Undertaker. <coughs> And what Vince used to do was he would have them meet with creative. (laughs) Oh, excuse me. He would have a, a department who would take someone and present potential ideas for just to kind of give Vince something to think about. And Vince used to like to talk to people and find out their backgrounds and oftentimes, he would take something in their legitimate background, and that would be an important part of the persona that was created. Big Boss Man is a perfect example. He was um, a guard in a prison. And so that ended up being what the Big Boss Man was, because wow. it was a, a chapter of, of real life. Um So I was there when The Undertaker was hired. I was there when Triple H was hired. Triple H met at the office. and um, uh, I'm trying to think. There were a bunch of others. Uh, uh, Right before I left, um, and I actually didn't officially do the hiring, but Mark Henry and uh, The Rock were both uh, hired at the same time and I set up an apartment for him, and they were going to be trained, and uh, and the original plan, as you know, was because Peter Maivia was his grandfather, and Rocky Johnson was his father. He was going to be Rocky Maivia. Well, it's back to that same thing again. Some of the great plans that sound so brilliant, uh, for whatever the reason, the fans hated it, and he needed to kind of take charge and and interject himself, and, and of course, is one of the great true success stories. Um, And I knew uh, The Rock from when I was wrestling in Florida, and Rocky Johnson was there at the same time, and uh, his son would used to go to the towns with him in summer when uh, school was out and he would go into the ring before the the doors opened and he'd roll around on the ring and one of the other kids uh would would was there too and um I mean I remember his nickname was Dewey and huh. then uh I didn't see him again until he was hired and I um uh, left shortly after And then it was, I was in '96, and then I didn't see him the next time until 2012 in Miami when he was in the main event. We were inducted in the Hall of Fame. I was really looking forward to seeing him. And a golf cart went by backstage, and as it went by, I yelled, Hey, Dewey. And the brakes went mm-hmm. on, and he got off. He wasn't driving, and he turned around and saw that it was me, and came over and gave me the biggest hug in the world. And and I asked him if I could have a picture taken with him before the day was out, because you know, and and he said by all means. So uh, a couple pictures were taken, both of which are on my website. One of which he's holding up the four fingers of the horseman. And then I got copies made, and I didn't see him until. I guess it was uh, almost two years, at least a year, if not two years later, uh, probably a year later at least, and he was at a Raw in Philly right before a a pay-per-view. And I live uh, about an hour drive from Philly. So I went down and I talked to Arn, who was a a producer backstage, and I said, I want to come down. I'd like to have, I know TV is crazy, but I said, if I could just have, a minute with him, I like to get him to sign the picture that I had making taken with him, and you know, put on my wall at home. So I went down there, and then when I got there, Arne said he's down at ringside with Vince. And then Arne came back and he said he's on his way back. He said now would be a great time to grab him. And as he came by, and I said, Rock, how are you? And he came over and said hello, and I said I bought the picture that we had taken, and I was wondering if you would, uh, if you would sign it for me. So he said, let's do it right now. So we went over, and actually I had programs from uh, that WrestleMania. And he uh, signed the picture, wrote a very nice personal message on there. Um, My twins were at WrestleMania. He signed uh, two programs, personalized to the, the twins, to my son and daughter, with a nice message. And he told me, he said, When I first got up there, he said, I was so unhappy. And he said, I remember calling you and saying, please make some phone calls and find a way to get me out of here. He said, I'm not used to having no money in my pocket. I just, this is all so new to me. And he said, you told me that, look, give it a chance. Be patient. He said, you have an unbelievable future ahead of you. And he said, the problem of having no money in your pocket, give me a day, I'll get that fixed. And so I went and got a check and got some cash, saw him and put some money in his pocket. And just having some money in his pocket made him feel, okay, you know, it's like, you know, for whatever the reason. And I had completely forgot that story. And that was part of that conversation of what stuck stuck in his mind. So that's just... A small indication of what the role of talent relations is, and sometimes you do things that don't seem all that important at the moment. That are with with superstars like Dwayne Johnson. That's what he remembered and stuck in his mind and made a point of telling me so.
1: Yeah, that's a yeah. phenomenal, phenomenal story. And, yeah. and, and JJ, and, and, and
2: here's you... a guy. Here's a guy who is a. a a mega star in the movies and comes back and is a star in the wrestling business and a lot of people don't understand. There's a lot of locker room resentment because he comes back and gets the big payday. The reason he gets the big payday is because he draws money and that business has always been that way. And He doesn't have to do that. He comes back because he has not forgotten his roots and it's a way of, I, in my eye showing respect for his heritage going back to his father and his grandfather.
1: Yeah, that's a phenomenal story, and it just shows you the impression that you make on anybody, whether it is one of the biggest stars in the business or I'm sure that there's a lot of guys that you haven't seen for many years that could say some some great things about you as well. And I personally want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on with us tonight, and we're going to wrap now. But this was so far beyond – my wildest expectations, and we're going to plug your website again, um, please, and, and plug your book, and uh, and plug. Let us know any events that you have coming up that we can uh, we can find you at.
2: Yeah, I, I appreciate. It. Like I say, I'm going to Wilmington this weekend, and then uh, there's a local promotion here, First State Championship Wrestling, that I you know this, that I don't usually get involved with that much locally, but uh, I did one of their shows, and I'm going back. Uh, I think. March uh, 21st, and then uh, I, I kind of got my start in Pittsburgh. My first singles match in the business was uh, a TV match in Pittsburgh against Killer Kowalski, and I'm very proud of the fact that I could say my first singles opponent was Killer Kowalski, and the final match that I had was for uh, uh, Lord Zoltan Ken Jugin, who ran a, uh, a benefit show for the School for the Deaf there. He has two children that are deaf, and and I drove to Pittsburgh, and my last match was a six-man match with Dominic DiNucci on the other side, and my son made the road trip with me out to Pittsburgh and got a chance to uh, to watch my last match. So I, I just, I, I I have, you know, Vince used one of his favorite things was, well, if you had a magic wand. And I just look back over my career, and I feel so fortunate that uh I was in the business at a time that I was what I call the glory years of the business. The book enabled me to thank personally all the names of all the people who who guided me and helped me uh along the way, and a lot of it is just there's guys that with talent that get help that uh just never ha- have the sheer luck of being in the right place at the right time, like the horseman. And I, I've even had that. And to have had two Hall of Fame rings bestowed upon me, I'm just uh, the luckiest guy in the face of the world. And I never conclude an interview without saying that my success was not because of my great talent. Uh, the success that I enjoyed is because of the wrestling fans, who are the greatest fans in the world, bar none. They supported me, they supported the horsemen, they supported professional wrestling right from the very beginning, and I never uh, forsake an opportunity, no matter where they are in the world, to say thank you to the fans for everything that they gave me.
1: And all the fans can go to JJDillon.com, and the book is Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, From McMahon to McMahon, and all the information about the book is there. Uh